your hand here in 2 Corinthians. We're going to go back to uh, the story that goes with the picture. So Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we'll start today. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are um, teaching about giving. And you may have been a part of a church where I was, uh, that they had a stewardship month every year. And uh, that hasn't been our church culture, uh, to have a stewardship uh, month or regular times where we encourage giving. Uh, all of our giving and our finances are as transparent as we know how, so they're on the bulletin board out there to your right. Uh, all that we spend from our checking account, all of our budget, uh, any questions you have, direct those to the deacons or elders, and we can uh, hopefully answer um, your questions. To uh, give ourselves a little bit of idea what this would possibly be like today, imagine if Jesus was on earth and he came to our church today and he pulled up a chair next to the offering box in the back with his disciples and they watched all of you and me put money in the box. Now we have sophisticated ways of putting money in, so no one knows how much, but in this day of the, the widow's two mites here, uh, the size of coins, maybe the sound of the coins was different, and obviously this lady's coins may have sounded like copper, like pennies today. So you could hear how many times the coins hit. Well, here today we're just writing checks, and it's in an envelope, so you can't even see how much people gave. Uh, but back then when Christ is watching, how much people are putting in. He points out someone who the disciples would not even have noticed. Where other people, the wealthy people, would have just have gotten by her, or if they got, she got by them, she, she would not have drawn anyone else's attention. But she draws the sovereign creator of the universe's attention by her gift. And there's only four verses here. The same story is told in Luke's account. I believe it's chapter 21. So Mark 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Now inside the temple, there was places for worship, for praying, and inside, uh, closer to uh, the sanctuary or where the, um, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place were, was this offering box. And you would have to go in, put your money in, and go out. And Jesus goes in and watches, and he says here, verse 41, many rich people put in large sums. Now, if you wanted to make a scene to be noticed, you would put your large coins in one at a time. Clink, clink, clink. And people behind you are like, wow, this person's putting in a lot. Clink, clink, <laughs> Okay, and... Why, why were they doing that? To be seen of men, okay? And Jesus isn't impressed with the large sums of the wealthy people. Instead, he points out, verse 42, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Probably today it would have been a couple dollars. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Guys, guess what? Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. He's not talking mathematically 
because the disciples and everyone else is like, no, she didn't put in more. Like if you write a check for $1,000 and some uh, little child comes in with two quarters, 50 cents isn't the same as $1,000, right? Okay, that's not the point. Why? And he's going to tell us the point in verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance and probably not to please God. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Why does this, and that's how the story ends, why does this stand out as the widow's two mites, and we still talk about her today, and all the wealthy people, we don't even care really about them. We care about her because what you have left over after you give is what God sees. How much you give, God sees. And most importantly, why you give, God sees. God sees everything. So Jesus doesn't have to be in a chair in our lobby every Sunday for him to see your giving or lack thereof or your motive. He sees right through what you put in that box how much and why. And we in 2 Corinthians now are concerned with one thing in life, pleasing God. Everything's about pleasing Him. So we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians and uh, we'll stop at chapter 3 and verse 18 to refresh our minds of this wonderful verse as we head toward our text of chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all can see the glory of the Lord as Christians because the Spirit of the Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to see the glory and to be changed by it. Verse 18 of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3:18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, so we can see the glory of the Lord and we are to be changed by this glory. Jonathan Edwards uh, writes, and he lived in Massachusetts uh, close to 300 years ago, and he has this quote, Grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. When we start to be changed from one degree of glory to another, we are revealing um, God's grace. And we can't expect to be fully glorious because we call our next bodies the glorious bodies or our glorified bodies. But in heaven, all of, uh, all of our wealth, all that we are, all of these bodies will be grace perfected. Grace is but glory begun. And when we all have seen God's glory, we're being changed by that glory. And we'll see how grace and glory fit together here in our text uh, this morning. Why do we need this passage? We're actually going to look at verses 1 to 15. We all need motivation to reflect our God's generosity. How can I get motivated to be a generous giver? Well, how much did you, did you need motivation back in January when you made a New Year's resolution to get off the couch and maybe get more exercise. Now, we are 
This is the 11th month of the year. How much motivation do you have right now to get off the couch and get more exercise like you did in January? You know what I found helps? If you have a friend that says, hey, I'll go exercise with you. I'll meet you at this time. I'll be outside your door. Ugh. The alarm goes off and snooze is not an option because you got a motivation of a friend. As a church, we gather as God's people and we should motivate each other, provoke one another to love and good works. We should motivate each other to be generous givers. In Bible times, they didn't have Facebook and they didn't have Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or all the other ways that we connect instantly with, or email with or text with, uh, with our friends. They didn't have a lot of manuscripts to read, biographies of what other people have done. However, uh, what Paul's going to do for these Corinthians is going to motivate them to give. And the first thing he's going to use to motivate them to give is the giving of somebody else. And when someone else is a gracious giver, just like when we read this widow's two mites, and you compare what we have today and what we have given today compared to her, like, uh, now my gift isn't that impressive anymore. <laughs> I thought I was doing the church a favor. I thought I was helping pay the bills here. I thought God would be pleased with this. And he, and he is, if your heart is motivated like we'll see today. But you may just feel guilty if you don't. And guilt isn't the greatest reason, or avoiding guilt isn't the greatest reason to give. But I think what we'll see here is not guilt that motivates generous giving. Uh, we'll see three things. It's a simple outline. Isn't this motivating? Let's look at our text again in verses 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, so part of the family of God, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. We'll stop right here and remind ourselves what churches is he talking about. You can go back to a map in the back of your Bible and see that north of Corinth is where Philippi, Thessalonica are, Berea, and those three churches in particular. Two of them have books of the Bible written to them. What do we know what it was like, the spiritual temperature, uh, the culture in Philippi? That's the place where Paul and Silas were put in prison, and at midnight they were singing, and the prison was open, and the Philippian jailer comes to know Christ. But the magistrates in that city drug Paul and Silas, probably by their feet, to the jail uh, and put them in stocks and beat them. So not a, a, ho a hostile, uh, not a, a friendly place to Christians. Thessalonica, we have already seen the books written to Thess the Thessalonians, and they were not known for their wealth, but known for their faithfulness to the Lord, as we can see in their, in their two books that we've already studied. Berea is known for studying the scriptures to see whether or not these things were true from Acts 17. So we have uh, at least those in other, uh, maybe smaller towns, uh, not known for a wealthy part of the Roman Empire, probably known for a blue-collar, everybody's working hard and barely making ends meet kind of area, whereas Corinth is on a trade route. 
There are a lot of trade goods coming in and out of Corinth and a lot of merchants probably living here. And so wealth is, is more abundant. You think probably of the Americans living today are more wealthy than many, many other countries in the world. So we don't have any excuses not to give. And we need motivation to be generous givers to the Lord's ministry. But he is going to use an example of those who are less off financially. And notice how he describes them that in a severe, verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. So they should be, and Paul has talked about affliction several other times and how uh, this affliction is just temporary. And these believers in Macedonia, this area north of Corinth and Athens, they're known, despite their severe tests of affliction, that they have an abundance of joy. And they have extreme poverty. I've never been to, on a mission trip, but anytime you go to a less, um, a more poverty-stricken part of our world, and I have been a couple times, and the, we had a church fellowship meal, and the abundance of food that was there was so encouraging. And here we are as wealthy Americans coming in, and we all have, we all look nice, and we have our matching outfits, and that, that spent, we spent a lot of money on those, and then, of course, plane tickets, and then uh, all these um, things that we're going to do to just help this ministry and when these ladies have a massive pot of food that they've cooked and share their food with us, it is so exciting and encouraging and convicting. It's motivating to go back and live that joyfully despite extreme poverty. And that's what Paul says here. There are, you guys in, in Corinth are living probably a higher lifestyle than the people in Macedonia, but these churches in Macedonia have affliction, they have joy despite their affliction, and despite their extreme poverty, they have overflowed in a wealth. See, extreme poverty and overflowing in wealth doesn't, well, how does this fit together? Well, it fits together because of the joy of the Lord, and because of verse 1, the grace of God. The grace of God is flowing through these churches of Macedonia, and despite their affliction and their extreme poverty, they are overflowing in a wealth of generosity on their part. Like the widow with two mites. These people aren't Jewish and they're not in the temple, but Paul is telling the Corinthians, this is what I've experienced and what I've observed at other churches. Close to you, you've heard about the Macedonians, and now... I'm going to use their example to encourage you. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means. Okay, so according to their means, we would call that today, or the Old Testament would call that a tithe, a percentage of a tenth of what uh, we earn. When I teach my children, when I teach new believers, how much should you give? It's not commanded in the New Testament. These two chapters are a lot of what the teaching of the New Testament, but I start with how much? I start with, well, let's start with a tenth. And if you've been saved as an adult and used to strict budgeting and you're used to spending 100% of your money and maybe giving 1% or 2% in the office or at Christmas time in a kettle 
with someone ringing a bell. When I say 10% and you're used to strict budget and the cost of living in New England is high, you're like, uh, I got to go from maybe 1% or 2% because that's what people do around me that are generous and to 10%. Now, I'm not telling 10% is what the New Testament says, but you got to start somewhere. And when I'm teaching my children, uh, whenever you may, and 10% is easy to figure out. And um, lifestyle choices and work, if possible, uh, will keep us uh, out of poverty and uh, be able to be generous. So these people, in verse 3, giving beyond their means, as I can testify. So Paul is testifying for them. That Paul knows what the Macedonian churches have as far as income and wealth. And he's saying they have given according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Like, he didn't say, you Macedonians, you have to give more than you can afford. Paul doesn't teach that way. The Bible doesn't teach that way. The Old Testament doesn't teach that way. God doesn't bend your arm against the wall. God's not in the mafia where he's going to come after you. He's going to take your stuff if you don't give. That's baloney. And on the flip side of it, what you can watch and say, I'm going to give you a special prayer hanky or some special blessing. If you give, that's also baloney as well. Don't fall for that stuff. Okay, so give and give primarily to your local church to help the ministry. And if you need encouragement to give, the churches in Macedonia, these people like the Philippian jailer, like Lydia, we know those two people and their story from Acts 16. We know the Thessalonians from their two books and how faithful they were in ministry. These people are giving beyond their means. We're in 2 Corinthians 8 and, and verse uh, 3, for those that just came back in. 2 Corinthians 8, 3. They gave beyond their means of their own accord. And this is how they gave. Look at verse 4. They're begging us earnestly for the favor. That word favor is also the word grace. Okay? Allow us to take part of taking part in the relief of the saints. So when these churches heard of any other church that Paul traveled with and told them, hey, and they may have said that they sat down with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Titus, anyone else that traveled with Paul, hey, do you know of any churches that you've traveled that are really struggling because of persecution, because of poverty, whatever it is? You let us know and you'll take these gifts from us to them, right? And this is the spirit that's in these churches that Paul's using as a good example to motivate the Corinthians uh, to be givers. We all need real-life examples, and whenever someone is truly a, a generous giver, someone giving beyond their means, at least according to their means, and those who are begging to give more they want to take part in the relief of the saints. They want to be part of this ministry. And we call our ministry here that we financially help those in need the, uh, the fellowship fund. And I have several, since I've been here in 12 years, asked me, hey, is there anyone that has a need? I'd love to just give it directly to them, anonymously, but directly to them. Yeah, I don't have to give it to the elders. You have to decide who needs it and how much. And I'll just give it directly to them. You just let me know. And there are people constantly that are probably giving money in the offering plate that has just someone's name on it. And the men who count the offering get the joy of 
giving that directly to someone that uh, has a need. That's pretty exciting that this is happening in our church. But some of you need encouragement. You need motivation to be a generous giver. Well, here's a real-life example. This is how these people are thinking. This is how they're acting. This is how they're talking. Look at verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So if you were a Corinthian and you went to these churches of Macedonia and said, what is your secret for this type of generous giving? And they would say this simply, verse 5. Well, we first just gave ourselves to the Lord. And the Corinthians are like, oh, okay. So you like gave all of yourself to the Lord. Yeah, so like whatever God wants to do with our lives, that's what he said. And we're just a channel. We're going to sing channels only, blessed master, at the end of our service. And we are just channels of which God's grace can flow from us, through us, to other people. And specifically in this passage, to saints who have needs. Those are believers. So this is, they first gave themselves to the Lord. So generous giving starts with first giving yourself to the Lord and then realizing as you give yourself to the Lord, this is the will of God. This is God's will for every Christian. How do we know that? Because we're all believers, that we all can see the glory of the Lord. Back in chapter 3, verse 18. So generous giving is just a fruit of I've given myself to the Lord. God's grace is free to flow through me. And as I am free from my greed and I've got to earn, earn, earn and keep and keep and spend everything on me, now I'm free to look around, still working hard, still earning money, but trying to spend less than what I earn so that I can give. And these real-life example was probably motivating to the Corinthians because they were their neighbors to the north, and they had less income than the Corinthians, and yet were used of the Lord because they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So first, give yourself to the Lord. Whatever the Lord wants to do with your money, allow him to do it. And then, by the will of God, this is God's will, is that we give ourselves to other people. This might mean that you don't watch everything that you want to watch, or you don't spend everything you want to spend, or you don't buy everything that you want to buy, that you have a margin, that you live less than you make, less than you earn, so that you can be generous. This is a real-life example. This was hopefully motivating to the Corinthians, and I think motivating to us even today. Verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. We're going to see God's grace over and over again, and that's gracious giving, generous giving. Those are synonyms. Complete this act of grace, motivating and um, helping the, uh, the um, Macedonians and the Corinthians to give themselves to the Lord and then help be part of the ministry financially. Um, so Paul has taught this. He started it as um, we urge Titus that as he and Titus is ministering now remotely from Paul and his group. Titus has ministered there in Paul's absence, and what uh, Titus has started, 
that he should complete among you uh, this act of grace. So teaching uh, to rely on God's grace and let God's grace flow through you in generous giving. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, now he, this is also motivating. Now he, he pulls these Corinthian aside and he has such a different spirit in this letter of bringing, coming alongside them and encouraging them. And this is another example of this. As you excel in everything, if someone that you admired that trained you in ministry said, you guys excel in everything, you'd be like, oh, that was so encouraging to hear. That's what Paul does for the Corinthians. Like he knows that when I tell you what to do now, you're going to do it. And you have excelled. And what have they excelled in? In faith, trust in God. In speech, their speech has changed from the first book. In knowledge, they know uh, the Lord's table. They know what the spiritual gifts are. They know the power of the resurrection in chapter 15. They are now useful in ministry because of their knowledge of God. Good theology, good practice. In all earnestness, earnestness you see it elsewhere in this passage is to do your best or to do it quickly. And so they are quick uh, to do their best. And in our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Second time he's used this word, act of grace. He's talking about giving. Act of grace, gracious, generous giving. See that you excel in it. What does he not say? See that you just do okay. Eh, just do the minimum. You ever thought this way as a, as a, as a person who is like me? I, do the, I oversee the finances of our family, and I'm looking at my bank accounts every day. And I'm looking at our budget, and I am just trying to figure out, okay, we have enough money to cover. What am I going to do with extra money? I'm going to save that, and this is why I'm going to save it. And i got a plan. But generous giving often, it's got to be part of the plan. And some of you don't look at a budget, and you don't care. You're just like, yeah, hey, if we have it, we have it. Okay, we'll just give it away. And you just, what do you say, fly by the seat of your pants. Okay, not the best way to handle finances, but it is work for people. But... Either way, we need to excel in this act of generous giving. Verse 8, I say this not as a command. Like, I'm not commanding you Corinthians to give money and be part of this ministry. Okay, it's not a command. And we'll see that again in chapter 9. It's not a command. I tell people when they ask how much to give, a tithe is, is a recommendation of the Old Testament, but it's not a command of the New Testament. And I'll say that over and over again. It's not a command. Now, God's not going to come after you if you give less than 10%. Okay, and he's not pleased just if you give more than 10%. No, it's more than that. It's not a command, verse 8, but to prove by the earnestness, that's doing your best, of others, that your love also is genuine. So what he's saying is that these Macedonian churches... Their love, the grace of God, is clearly flowing through them, and despite their poverty, they're, they're being generous. And their love for God and their love for the saints is obvious. And now the Corinthians, they're growing in these areas of, of verse 7. And so he's just saying, okay, I'm not telling you this as a command because I know you're going to do the right thing, um, that I want your love also to be genuine. I know you're going to do your best. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I'm going to actually end with that verse, so we'll come back to it. Verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment. This be benefits you, 
who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. So we've already seen Paul has, has had money from the Corinthians. I believe he took it back to those in Judea. Uh, he was a messenger for them, taking a large gift, a financial gift, to help the churches that were struggling financially in another part of the Roman Empire. So they've already begun. It sounds like what he's already said about Titus there, that uh, he's urged you to start, complete what he's uh, taught you. And now he's saying here that um, here's my judgment. Here's what I think will benefit you. A year ago, you started not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. So the desire to be a generous giver was already there in the Corinthians. They just needed to be taught, uh, understand what it means, why to give, how to give, who to give to, um, so that they can reflect the glory of God and grow in this area as well. Verse 11. So now, finish doing it as well. So you've started it. You've also have the desire to do it. Now, if you don't have a desire to give, verse 9 is your verse. We're going to end with that. If you don't have a desire, your desire is to hoard. I am earning all this money. I'm working all of my life so that I don't end up in the poorhouse. That I don't end up on the street or whatever you think is the life of poverty. Okay, And I'm going to keep almost all of my stuff for me. This is actually Ephesians 4. This is how the Gentiles live in all greediness. Ephesians 4, I think it's 19, says that. We don't think that way. We don't live that way. We haven't sort of learned Christ that way, and Christ is our highest motivator. But a real-life example helps us to motivate us. The second motivation is a real-life challenge. He's challenged them, what they've begun, what they've desired. That's a good desire. What Titus began to teach you, finish it. Okay, I'm going to help you finish it. And verses 10 to 14 continue to, um, to challenge them. So now, verse 11, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So put your desire and complete your desire and... Um, Help it to match. Help it to go together. Your desire, you have the, you have the means, you have the desire now. Uh, let's bring it to completion. So write the check, we would say today, or transfer the funds, or put the offering in, or whatever it is. Give, give the money away. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a, to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So I have, at times, wanted to give money away, and I look at my bank account, I'm like, I, I don't have it <laughs> as much as I want to give money away, I don't have it. And that may be where you are at now or where you've been in your life, and you're like, oh, man, I just, I want to be a generous giver, and I, uh, the readiness is there. Um, but it's only acceptable according to what a person has. I can't give away what I don't have. I should not probably go into debt, put it on a credit card to be a generous giver. That's not smart, okay? So don't feel guilty if you don't have to give away. You may not have in a certain stage of life or certain circumstances of life. It is not, it's not a command, okay? This, and take that off of your chest. Take that off of your shoulders. Don't, I'm not, this is not a feel guilty message. This is a real-life challenge, though, to think, okay, this is how we think about giving, Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, 
Like, so if the Corinthians are working really hard and the other churches aren't working hard and they're just sitting around and they're all, the Corinthians are wealthy, they're just going to give us their money. No. Okay, that doesn't work here in our church either. We talk about the fellowship fund every time we meet as elders every two weeks. And when the deacons meet with us every two months, we talk about it with all nine of us. And we talk about who needs, uh, what are the needs uh, are in our church. Does someone need to change a job? Does someone need to sell something? Does someone need to, uh, does someone need counsel instead of just we throwing money at people? So this comes with relationships. And relationships determine the challenge, okay? And so Paul feels he's had a relationship with these Corinthians, and he's, his thought process of helping them grow their desire, their readiness to give, but he's saying, this is how we're thinking, okay? Like, I want you to uh, be burdened while other people are going to live an easy life, and you're, you're going to have some sort of uh, welfare state where a few people uh, are supported by the masses uh, or by the wealthy. This isn't what I mean to do. But this is as a matter of fairness, equality, something that's just right, okay? Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs. So you Corinthians right now, as he writes this in the mid-first uh, century, around 51, 52, he's saying, you guys have a lot of money. You have a lot of wealth. You have extra money. Um, so there are people in the Christians, saints, that have serious needs. So uh, we want to um, connect you with them. So that your abundance at the present time, in verse 14, should supply their needs. So that their abundance, because it may come a day where they have abundance and you don't, that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. Like we're all in this together as brothers. As he starts this whole passage, brothers, we're all in this together. You're related to the church of Macedonia. You may not meet them. You may not ever travel to Macedonia. But they're your brothers in Christ. And as we take mission trips or as we get connected with Christians around the world, um, God may work in your heart as you have abundance to connect you with someone who has a need. And it is the most exciting thing to do with money is to give it away. It's not to spend it on you. It's to give it away. And it's very exciting. And if you haven't experienced that yet in life, uh, I, I hope you will have that experience. Now, the final point is a real-life example, a real-life challenge, and now the final point is the real God to reflect. At the heart of generous giving is a relationship between us and our God. And what Paul says throughout this passage, he uses the word grace. Grace is power. Someone who is a gracious person is giving you some of their power or wealth. And God, for by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And all Christians are saved by grace through faith. And as we're saved by grace, we are to be channels of grace to other people. Let's look at verse 15, and we'll end it with, with verse 9. Verse 15 has a quote from the Old Testament. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. And when you look back at Exodus 16 and the 
institution of in, instituting of the um, the manna that they were to gather. Some people greedily gathered more, and they ended up God controlled how much they had, and they didn't have it. It, it ran out on them every day. They had to go gather more. And greedy people realize you shouldn't be greedy because God's going to control how much manna actually makes bread or whatever else you eat. And there are some people probably because of physical um, or they just couldn't work very fast. They couldn't find enough and they had a little bit less than they were supposed to make. But God made that go a little further for their family because they couldn't gather as much as others. The, Either way, God's, God is the one who controls what we have. He also controls what we give and what we have left over. We don't have the widow's might end of story, but I doubt she died hungry. Don't you have that feeling? Like, if God used her as an example, he's like, all right, she gave me everything. Now I'm going to let her go starve. Are you serious? Do you really think that's who God is like? Come on. The whole Bible tells us that when, when people work, that God gives them enough to live on and gives them enough to be generous to those who don't have enough to live on. That's how the whole Bible is set up financially. And the Old Testament ties to the New Testament here. And what God wants us to do with our money is to reflect Him. So this matches... Well, we see in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, that we are seeing the glory of God and we are being changed by that glory to reflect the character of our God. And when we are generous givers for the right reason, we want people to see God's glory. God is pleased. And God connects Christians that have with Christians that need. He has done it over and over and over again throughout church history, and he will continue to do it. And sometimes you're the recipient, and you need to be a humble recipient because sometimes God wants other people to give to you. And if you're in a place now that you have abundance, be humble in giving that. And it's not to make a scene. It's not to be looked at as, I have a lot, I, I have so much, I am in a place to give. No, it's not. The widow doesn't sound the bell and say, hey, guess what? I'm giving my two mites and puts them in the box. The other people may have done that, but not her. She's an example because she's doing it privately. And as God teaches us privately how to give, uh, that it doesn't matter if other people know what we give. Um, but God sees, and we are to reflect him. Now, verse 9. Verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word know is also to understand. You guys understand the grace of Christ. You not just know it, you've experienced it. You understand how it works. When you and I understand salvation and how it works, oh, it's by grace we're saved through faith. And when we understand that God gives us his son to take our place on the cross and gives us freedom from sin to live, not holding on to what we have, but to just see ourselves as slaves of a perfect master, to him to use whatever he puts in our bank account, whatever he puts in our lap to use to help other people. 
and we are to reflect the real God. And the real God is not up in heaven ready to zap you if you don't give. The real God is a gracious God who saves his people and expects his people to show the world what he's really like. And he is a gracious God. We know that because we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because though he was rich, and we won't understand that phrase completely until we get to heaven and see the riches of what Jesus left. You can imagine the lifestyles of the rich and famous. You can imagine the, the most wealthy places on the face of the earth, and they will not look like anything like the riches of heaven. It's going to blow all of our minds. But verses like this are going to, oh, whoa, now I can see the riches that Jesus left. And though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. What kind of family did Jesus choose to be put in? Carpenter's family. We would say a blue-collar family that had at least seven kids because he had five, four brothers and he had sisters. We don't know his sister's names, but he had at least six siblings. And we don't see Joseph on the scene when Jesus is crucified. Uh, and so his mother, Mary, had to be taken care of by John. Not a wealthy family. Barely making ends meet. That's the family Jesus chose to be born in. Why? Because of verse 9. Right? He's the real God. And we're to reflect him. And this story that I'm going to have you meditate on it this week. That's part of your homework. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. And it's in the middle of this giving generously passage that we have, okay, it's hard to give. Yes, what am I going to live on if I give? Yes, we have all of these fears with giving. But we have a real God to reflect. And when people look at our lives, are we an example, a real-life example that other people could say, hey, these people... They don't have much, but they are generous givers. What they have, they'll share with you. Why are we sharers? Because we have a real God, the real God to reflect. There's no other God. And the gods that people try to invent over the course of human history are not like verse 9. He's not a, they're not generous gods. They're demanding gods. They're vindictive gods. They're selfish, greedy, manipulating, vengeful gods. It's not the true God. The true God, though he was rich, he became poor. Why did he become poor? So that you, us, saints, by his poverty might become rich. And why are we rich? I'll let you answer that question this week. I'm not going to give you the answer. Practical application. We're going towards 2 Corinthians 9-7. God loves a cheerful giver. This week, I want you to read. Search for, if uh, you are too young to read, ask your parents or grandparents to read you of one Christian 
who has pleased God with sacrificial giving. It could be in the pages of scripture, it could be in the pages of church history. I'm sure you can find stories out there. Find one story that you don't know about and one Christian, not someone who doesn't know Christ, who's just trying to work their way to heaven, and there are many stories like that out there, um, but find one person who is a born-again believer, follower of Christ, who is trying to please God with sacrificial giving, okay? And then the second application. This week, meditate on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in becoming poor so that we could be rich. I could have sermon after sermon after sermon on that subject alone. But I, I'm going to stop here so that you can meditate on it yourself. All I'm going to do today is provoke you to study this week. Meditate. Think about this while you're driving to work. Turn off talk radio. Turn off the elections. It is what it is. Go out and vote on Tuesday, but don't get hung up with this. Don't meditate on elections day and night. Don't meditate on the, the makeup of the House and the Senate and the governor's races. And You're going to gag spiritually. Meditate on the grace of God. Meditate on what the glory of heaven that Jesus left. And what does it mean that he was poor and that we are rich. What does that mean? I'm going to have you meditate on it. And as you meditate on it, share what you've learned and meditate on God's word, what God's word says about that. What does that mean? I'm going to pray and thank the Lord for our food and close our service and we'll sing channels only. Then our new members, newer members, can join me in the back. As you uh, plan to stay for lunch, uh, let's thank the Lord for what he's given us. Our Father, you are such a gracious God. This month of Thanksgiving, we have so much to be thankful for, and the most that we have to be thankful for is Jesus Christ, who was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. Help us to meditate on that day and night this week. Help that to change us by your glory, by your spirit in our inner man. Help us to be generous from the inside out. Help us to be willing to give of ourselves to you first and then to other people. Help us to look at our bank accounts differently. Help us to look at the offering box differently. Help us to look at how we spend our money differently because of Christ. Change us by your spirit, please. Thank you for providing this food for us. We have an abundance of food that we're going to enjoy. Thank you for those who are going to enjoy it with us. And I pray that our conversation would be pleasing to you. All this that you have enabled us to bring today is from your hand, and uh, we want to share it with others. Thank you for the privilege we have to share this in freedom, and thank you for the freedoms of our country. I pray for the elections that we are all thinking about, that we would trust you, we would do our part and leave the results to you. Uh, you're sovereign over our finances. You're also sovereign over kings and rulers. 
and uh, we will trust you for the wisdom we know uh, need to know how to live, no matter who is elected. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.